This is Dirt Cheap from Neon Hum. I'm Jeffrey Golden. And I'm Amanda Meadows. And we're reading Murder in the Glass Room by Edwin Rolfe and Lester Fuller. Who is your favorite between Edwin Rolfe and Lester Fuller so far? We know they, they, the, the prose doesn't distinguish who wrote what, but just based on your gut instinct. I'm going to say based on my gut instinct because it's Edwin Rolfe and Lester Fuller. Uh, obviously, Fuller should have gone before Rolfe in the credits mm. if we were going by alphabetical. So I'm going to say Rolfe is the top <laughs> dog or is at least the annoying presence that forced this book to happen. R- Rolf is the guy. Yeah. Rolf is and the Lester, maker. Yeah. But that's my that's my bet based on the way it was credited. I like a I like the author that lies on the couch while the other one does most of the work. Yes. I'm going to go with Lester Fuller. <laughs> I'm going to go with Mr. Lazy as we've just, as we've decided. <laughs> Why is it that every like writing team, one of them is literally lying on the floor just saying random shit and the other one is furiously like managing an actual document? Well, traditionally, only one person was able to write at a time. True. So you would have one person at the typewriter, one person at the computer, and then the other one would be wandering around the room or would be uh, like pacing back and forth, or one of them would be like on the couch, but like bouncing a ball up at Yeah, up one the of them is working while the other one is performing work. Right. <laughs> and it's <That's> like. Right. <laughs> Amanda, we are approaching chapter six. We have our bookie, Phil Norris. He's the presumed number one suspect in the murder of his wife, Edna. And he's got an idea. He sure does. Uh, so now in in chapter five, he goes to the next appointment in Edna's book. And it is to Professor Stanley. And it, it's clear that there's a lot of confusion on like, what does he actually do? And then Tommy, the person who was with Edna the last time he saw her and yeah, slapped he, her in public. He uh, came into the office, did not recognize Phil. Iced him. Iced him. Phil was furious about it, which is really funny because he doesn't want anybody to know who he is right now. And it's, it was really funny that he was furious that Tommy didn't recognize he him. He can't even hold to like a simple lie <laughs> in the face of someone somewhat disrespecting him or at least like perceived slights. Uh, <laughs> no question. <laughs> um, all right. Well, are we ready to dive in? Yes. To chapter six. The St. Regis was a very expensive and eminently respectable hotel on Wilshire and Beverly Hills. It was inhabited by visiting social busybodies, by wives publicly fleeing their husbands' bed and board, and by retired old ladies and gentlemen. It was very early when I got there. I had almost an hour to wait before... Before what? I suddenly realized I didn't know. I bought an early edition of the afternoon paper and stretched out in a big chair next to a marble pillar in the lobby. There wasn't even a hint of the murder. I looked around the lobby. Most of the people looked old and tired, but well-dressed and rich. They probably had, every one of them, a good solid chunk of dough salted away someplace. There didn't seem to be anyone who looked as if he were waiting for Edna. At one o'clock, I got up and went over to the entrance of the dining room. On my way to the bar, I stopped a bellhop, gave him a dollar, and asked him to page Mrs. Norris at 115. 
whoever Edna had expected to meet might rise to the fly. What do we think of this plan to page Mrs. Norris, to have the bellhop page Mrs. Norris? It's interesting. I don't understand why you would do that. I guess the thinking is, okay, I'm puzzling it out right now. So I guess his thinking is he'll have him page Edna and then maybe this person, perhaps a man, being a proper gentleman, will go over to the phone and be like, Edna is not here. I'm waiting for Edna as well or something like that. But I don't know. Like if I heard it was like her paged, I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is this meeting is not happening. Yeah, he's just going to her appointments with no plan. I feel like this is just, again, not detective work, but the (laughs) behavior of a lost and heartbroken man. (laughs) The bar was open to the lobby. From there, I could watch without being too much in evidence myself. Usually, I never touch a drop before late afternoon, but that day wasn't usual. There was a crowd thronged around the bar, but I managed to find a stool. I ordered a double dry martini. I drank the first one slowly between drags on my cigarette and looked around to see who was in the room. Except for an oil millionaire who never bet more than $2 on a race, there was nobody I recognized. I guess, you know, I was going to be like, oh, double dry martini in the afternoon. Pretty cool. But you know what? He's the number one suspect in his wife's murder. So maybe it could could fill a break for heavy drinking in the afternoon. Yeah, I feel like, (laughs) yeah, like heavy drinking was just like a national pastime. So if anything, this just this is the most normal part of the book for me. Uh, It's also very noir. Him at the bar with the double martini between drags of a cigarette. Like this feels like a noir. Like this feels very much much like what the book is, what right. you would expect. The crowd was getting thicker. I turned back to order another drink. When I swung around towards the lobby again, there was a blue silk dress blocking my view. I looked up at the face that belonged to it. It was the blonde from the towers, the one who had thought I looked so funny playing my little game with the cross lines of the carpet. Hello, she said. I said, hello too. My first impression of her hadn't been wrong. Okay, so a reminder that when Phil met Shelley a couple chapters ago, his first impression of her was that she laughed as if she were a penis ejaculating. I don't know if that was like the first thing that came to mind or they like cycled through some similes (laughs) and landed on ejaculation, but I, I don't know how that's possible. Did she... Do like several seconds of horrifying grimacing <laughs> before well, the laughter. Well, that was. I want to point out that his the first impression was about her laughter, and she doesn't appear to be laughing here. But maybe he's just saying, "Oh, she's hot," you know? Yeah. Because he's maybe. definitely like, I looked at her dress, and then I looked up at the face for whom the dress is attached. And it was the face of a woman I knew. Then I looked back at the dress for a little while longer, stared at the dress. Women are an alien concept to Phil. Yes. He's so detached from, like, concepts of, like, women being real people. And it shows. It shows. Waiting for somebody? I asked. "Uh Uh-huh. 
she said. I suddenly remembered that I was a gentleman. At least I go into rooms so marked. So I scrambled to my feet and offered her the stool. That was a very classy bathroom joke. <laughs> At least I go into rooms so marked <laughs> as gentlemen, for I am a man. <laughs> Martini? I asked her. Uh-huh. She shook her head. She seemed to use that same double sound to mean yes and no. It was all in the way she looked when she said it, all in the way she accented it. If she wanted to say yes, it came out, uh-huh. For no, it was, uh-uh. Bourbon and water, she said. The crowd was standing three deep now. I leaned over her shoulder and ordered her drink. I couldn't spot the perfume she was using, but it smelled just right. Sweet and soft and subtle. Yes, very on brand. He's like, Phil. smells like a woman. Smells like a woman. <laughs> I'm horny. <laughs> I'm a horno. Cozy, isn't it? She laughed as I got jostled and almost spilled the remains of my martini in her lap. I tried hard to come up with something snappy, but it wasn't in me. As quick aside, but I'm just imagining the writer at the desk trying to come up with a line and then was like, screw it. And then he was just like, Phil could not come up with jokes. Yeah, I like that the writers are just so reluctant to do work writing this book that they are just willing to let their protagonist be shitty. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, he's dumb. Like, it's I okay. Wasn't, I wasn't it's all right. At- we can write a book about a dumb guy. It's fine. <laughs> if he's dumb, then we don't have to know anything either. <laughs> Taps forehead. Yes. Be right back. We're back. When's your appointment for? I asked her. One o'clock. You're late, and so is he. Husband? He is, and I always am. I lost him in traffic long ago. She laughed. It was a low, bubbling kind of laugh. I liked it. We know, we know, Phil. We know you love her laugh. You know, she said, here we are chattering away like a couple of ex-Radcliffe roommates, and you don't even know my name. Don't make me guess. Believe it or not, it's Shelley. Shelley Callahan. No kidding. Like the poet? No kidding. She laughed that low laugh again. Yeah, I I tried looking this up. Um, I could not find uh, when I researched. I could not find a Shelley Callahan. Um, when you search, when you Google Shelley Callahan poet, what you get is a book by an author named Callahan about Percy Shelley, oh. the poet of Ozymandias. Uh, am I saying that right? Ozymandias. Yeah, yeah. yeah probably. Yeah, great. Um, so <laughs> I couldn't find it. So, uh, listener, if you know who, uh, Shelley Callahan is, who the poet is, I would uh, love an assist. Yeah. I would wonder if it's, know. yeah. Like if it was like a, if Shelley Callahan was some kind of LA 
based poet that would be interesting history to know Absolutely. but yeah other than that we could read one of Shelley's poems on the air maybe the poem is the clue to solving this murder that's gotta be it yes absolutely <laughs> Shelley Callahan the great ARG poet <laughs> <laughs> yeah, constantly putting scavenger hunts into her poems. You know what? Yeah. That's how you get me into poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> scavenger hunts, riddles, puzzles. <laughs> yes, please. Mine's Johnson, I said. Pete Johnson. He gave himself two euphemisms for dick. Absolutely. Uh, it, it just. My uh, name is Dick Longcock. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Oh, Phil. Johnson. Pete Johnson. Pleased to meet you. This one would be easy, I thought. But I wasn't in any frame of mind for romance. Not that afternoon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Phil. (laughs) You got this. Sure you're not. Sure, sure, Phil. (laughs) She noticed I kept turning to look out towards the lobby. Anxious? She smiled. Yeah, I answered, sort of. As a former editor of an Advice to the Lovelorn column, she said, let me tell you that it's not good to be too anxious. Makes us women too confident. Amanda, you are a woman. (laughs) Much like Shelley Callahan. I don't even know what she means. (laughs) Really? You can't even puzzle this this one together? This is her advice. She's a, a romance columnist at yeah. one point apparently in her career. It sounds like she's saying like, oh, if the boy looks like he's kind of losing his shit and can't keep his cool, then he must really like you and uh that's a way to kind of gas you up, but at the same time, like if it goes too far in that direction, I would imagine in her line of advice it would be like, well, now you've like killed the intrigue. That's like another like funny way that romance is talked about the way war is. Right. And it's like the other side knows that there's a chink in your armor. Right. And it's like, I thought this was about love. <laughs> no. Not like who gets ultimate power, ultimate domination. Power. But domination. that is what it's about. You a newspaper woman? I asked. Newspaper man. Man? I asked, looking at the deep V neckline of her dress. <laughs> yeah, Phil is so gross. <laughs> Why is he always staring? Yeah. He's just like goonishly staring at her boobs. <laughs> uh huh. There's no such thing as a newspaper woman. At least city editors don't think so. Work at it much? All the time. No vacations? Very seldom. Ever? She laughed and hung her head in mock modesty. <laughs> Mr. Johnson, she said. It must have been 1.15 in the dot because the bellhop started to bellow out. Call for Mrs. Norris. His voice came clearly over the chatter, but no one in the barroom seemed to hear. The boy kept calling it out, but nobody seemed to care. No one even looked around when he passed. Then a thin little guy with a mop of hair so long that it curled around his coat collar stopped the boy. I pushed my way towards him. Mr. Forrest? I'm Mr. Forrest, the little man was saying. The hop looked at him in disgust and called out clearly and distinctly, Call for Mrs. Norris. 
Oh, excuse me. My name is Dolores. Uh, no, Mrs. Norris. It's just like an I'm Spartacus moment, but every name is different, like because <laughs> everyone misheard it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Master Fortress. <laughs> As per instructions, he made three round trips through the lobby, but there wasn't a bite. For the third time that day, I had failed. The blonde was still sipping her bourbon at the bar. I had hardly got back to her when a six-foot-two Marine lieutenant with a blouse-dripping glory suit came over. <laughs> a blouse-dripping glory suit. A blouse. He called wow. it a blouse. He called it a blouse, and he called his the medal's glory soup. I mean, maybe he's just, like, literally jealous that the soldiers get shiny things. I mean, probably. Because he does love, like, shiny objects. So maybe these are, like, the, the shiny objects that he can't have. Yeah, those gold stars must be taunting him. Right? He wants those shiny little shimmery epaulets on his shoulders, too. You know he does. That's yeah. why he looks so dumpy, because he truly believes he belongs in nice digs, but isn't willing to actually do it, because yeah. deep down he doesn't actually believe he deserves it. He should just go ahead and start stealing valor. <laughs> he seems like a candidate for stolen valor. <laughs> Shelly, he said. Lieutenant Beauchamp, she said. Meet Mr. Johnson. I don't think the lieutenant heard the name. His eyes were all over Shelly. She climbed down from the stool. Thanks for the company, she said. Anytime, I answered. Thanks anyway, Phil. She laughed and they moved away. By the time I got it through my head that she had called me Phil, they were gone. I looked in the dining room for them, but they must have gone someplace else to eat. Hmm, so... Interesting. Called him Phil, even though presumably they hadn't met before, and he said his name was Pete. Yeah, I mean, mm, the way she laughed and said, woman. oh, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> like, it, yeah, it mm. felt like she knew something. Because yeah. why else would she be playing it so cool? She's playing it cool. She's. It feels like everyone around him is playing three-dimensional chess compared to him. <laughs> yes. Be right back. And we're back. Okay, so Phil left the St. Regis, and he's continuing on with his very good plan, which is chasing down the next entry in Edna's datebook. Number 2846 Jerriman Street was the Los Angeles equivalent of a tenement house, except that 2846 was not one house, but eight little gray bungalow shacks crowded close together, with narrow, chipped cement walks between them. There was no directory here, no way of checking up on the tenants. I had to ring the bells one by one and knock at the wooden doors where the bells were out of order or non-existent. Bungalows were all part of number 2846. They were identified by letters, A to H. I started with bungalow A, pulling the old census gag on them. He owns census gag. He's looking for P. Well, I'll remind you, in the address book uh, yes. of uh, Edna, it says P, comma, and then 2846 Jerriman Street. So that's why uh, that's that's why he's here. Right. So what do you think? Census gag. 
This is definitely going to work. Okay, definitely going to work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know what this game is that he's playing. I guess he's just looking for somebody whose name could presumably start with a P. I mean, what happens when he goes, like, when does he stop, I guess, is, like, my question. Is he just going to do the whole street and then look back and go, okay, how many P's did I get? (laughs) Or, like, is he just going to, like, stop at the very first person who gives him a name starting with the letter P, which I think is what he's going to do. And be like, you're the murderer. Yeah, you must be the murderer. You're under arrest. (laughs) He doesn't have handcuffs, so he just kind of throws his hat at him and runs. (laughs) Bam, you're in Phil jail. Uh, Let's find out. Bungalow A was occupied by Mr. and Mrs. Flaherty and their two children, aged 11 and 9. Mrs. Flaherty, a tired, pleasant-faced woman with mouse-colored hair, didn't have to tell me a third one was on the way, but she did, just to keep the senses accurate. Mr. Flaherty, his first name was Robert, was off at work as a Pacific Electric Car motorman, and the children were at school. I thanked Mrs. Flaherty and moved on to Bungalow B. A kid about 17, dressed in blue jeans and a plaid shirt, opened the door. I used the same tactics on him, but he got suspicious because I marked the information down in pencil on the back of an old envelope instead of using regular forms. How did anyone believe him? I knew he was going to do some fuck shit like that. Like, oh my God. He just pulled out whatever fucking paper was in his trench coat pockets. Uh, yeah, I'm with the census. Let me write down all of your sensitive information on this receipt. (laughs) Hey, he said. "Uh, They don't take the census in 1946. Yes, they do, I said. Nah, only every ten years when the number ends in zero. I learned that in civics. I explained that this was a special California state census designed to check on the housing shortage crisis. Then why don't you write it down in a book? I explained very gently that I transferred the information in ink to the regular forms after I jotted them down here so I wouldn't make a mistake in the permanent record. So where are the forms? Outside in my car. He darted out of the house and in about three minutes he was back with a new respect for me in his voice, his eyes, his attitude. What a beaut, he said. I offered silent thanks for the lucky impulse that had driven me to buy that Lincoln Continental convertible. So basically, he is the most suspicious and obvious (laughs) fraud. But because his car is cool, this teen is going to just believe that he is a census worker. Bungalow C was the only one with a hydrangea bush out front. It was occupied by an unkempt, fat, old woman who was the manager of the court. She sniffled all the time I talked with her. I thought I saw a half-empty gin bottle on the table of her living room. I had no further difficulty with the other tenants. Most of them were free and forthright about all the details. They seemed happy to have someone to talk to. Only one tenant was out, an old man named Oliver Martin, who occupied Bungalow E, and was known to his neighbors as Grandpa. The kid said he was close to a hundred years old, but Mrs. McManus, in Bungalow G, laughed when she said it and told me she guessed that he was about 70. I looked over the list. I had drawn a perfect blank, not a single P in the whole lot. 
Besides, I couldn't see Edna knowing the kind of people who lived at 2846 German. Me? I had known lots of people like that, and still did, but not Edna. Yet there was an entry in the book, clear and exact. P2846 German. I looked at it and looked at it, and still it didn't make sense. The whole thing was screwy. Edna hadn't just put the notation in her book to be funny. Maybe P wasn't a name. Maybe it was something else. I couldn't hang around in the court without people becoming suspicious of me, so I started for the car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people are already suspicious of you, Phil. <laughs> that is that is very clear. He is so bad at picking up on other people's cues. It's very funny. <laughs> Another great detective asset of his. <laughs> As I passed Bungalow C., Mrs. Rankin, the manager, came out. She looked me over as if she was trying to make up her mind about something. She must have decided because she beckoned to me and said, Psst. I was right about the gin. She smelled like a juniper orchard. She spoke out of the side of her mouth, looking around to see if anyone was listening. Did you see the shepherds in Bungalow D? She asked. I told her that I had. They're moving. That fact didn't interest me particularly. It ain't been rented yet. Then I remembered that I hadn't any place to sleep. I couldn't go back to the towers. I didn't want to chance a hotel, not even a flop house on Main Street. If the cops were really after me, these would be the first places they would look. And I did want to find some way to stay around 2846 Jeremy on the chance that P would show up. You know, it's really funny that he's going to move into this place where he has told all of his neighbors an obvious lie, an obvious and easily irrefutable lie. But he's like, I'm going to live here next to all these people who will easily figure out that I'm a liar. (laughs) Hi, I'm a liar. I'm also wanted for my wife's murder. Please give me all your personal information. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, uh, I got to go. Never mind. I'll be right across the hall. (laughs) Like, what the the fuck, Phil? This is a cool plan. (laughs) They're moving out tonight, she said invitingly. I told her that I would be glad to rent the place. I don't know, she said. There's a long waiting list. I took a $10 bill out of my pocket and creased it down the middle. Mrs. Rankin sniffed. There's an awful long waiting list, she said. I took out another tenor. But seeing that you're such a good friend of the owner's, I, I think you can have it. She couldn't wait to get her hands on the bills. She must have run out of gin. The rent will be $50 a month, payable in advance. The place wasn't worth 25. I peeled 50 more from my dwindling roll. I'll move in tonight, I told her. She took a 10 cent store key out of her apron. I suppose you'll want this, she said. Although what good it is, I don't know. All the locks are the same. Uh-oh. Oh yeah, that's a that's a weird thing. What a crazy thing to tell a tenant that their key could open up the apartments of their neighbors. Was that ever a thing where you would just give? How were keys made back then? I guess I could understand, okay, like the locks are poor. And so like, yeah, all the keys, you could basically wiggle 
any of your keys into them and they would work. Like, it's is not a good building. But, like, the fact that, like, all the keys are literally the same, that we just issue everybody the same key with the same lock system is crazy. How is that possible? <laughs> like, <laughs> it is a mind-blowing idea. I'm so confused. Uh, also, $50 a month. Now, okay, what would this place... And this was during a housing crisis. By the way, like, Southern California has just always been in a housing crisis. Yeah, that's, that's, it's, that has never stopped, That's never apparently. stopped. Ever since, like, yeah, we, we've never built enough homes for people. <laughs> you know, the people who, who have the money to build homes don't want everyone to have a home here. This is true. Yeah, but, uh, like, 50 bucks a month. 50 bucks a month. Now this would be, like... $2,000 a month. Yeah. <laughs> like the worst apartment. For the worst apartment. <laughs> right. Where like your bathroom looks into the other person's bathroom. Right. <laughs> like just the saddest possible layouts. Uh, oh. Nevertheless, I took the key and thanked her for her kindness. Welcome to La Ferenz Court, Mrs. Rankin said. It was the second time that day that I had been welcomed into a place I didn't want to be. It was four minutes after three. And that is chapter six of Murder in the Glass Room. Um, well, Amanda, do you remember a couple episodes ago where Phil brought up Rosa? Yes. His, his caretaker. Yes. When he was out in the street. And you were like... I am very apprehensive about meeting this character. <laughs> well, I've got news for you. Oh, shit. Next chapter, we are meeting Rosa. <laughs> oh, my God. I have so many questions already. And that's next time on Dirt Cheap. Dirt Cheap is a Neon Hum podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Golden. And me, Amanda Meadows. Our producer is Carla Green. Associate producer is Chloe Chobel. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Editing by Vikram Patel. Original music by Chris Katinas. Additional tracks you hear on this episode are from Epidemic Sound. Our engineer and sound effects guy is Scott Somerville. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode for another exciting chapter of Murder in the Glass Room.